Welcome to this episode of Season 5 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 4 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. With our surging growth in audience and subscriptions, The Common Bridge continues to expand its reach. The show is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Simply search for The Common Bridge. You can also find us on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. This episode of The Common Bridge is brought to you by Sensei, who offer an affordable cyber solution to small and medium-sized organizations. From creating an incident response plan to providing cyber awareness training and phishing simulations, Sensei delivers the tools to help your company prevent a cyber attack. Curious to see where your company stands on cybersecurity? Begin with a free cyber health evaluation that takes less than 30 minutes with no obligation to buy. You will get a credit score, but for cybersecurity, start your journey with Sensei today. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy. In the news, we've heard a lot about the continuing conflict in the Middle East, Israel, Hamas, the Palestinians, Gaza, Iran, all the other actors in there, some incredibly horrific violence, things that are unspeakable. And is there a right? Is there a wrong? What's the history? Well, today we've got with us on the Common Bridge, Dr. Todd Endelman. He is the Professor Emeritus of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. We're going to try to cover several centuries worth of history in the next 45 minutes or so. And with that, Dr. Endelman, thank you for joining us. I know you've had a long and distinguished career. Our audience likes to know a little bit about the biography of our guest. Where'd you spend your early years and what was your career arc like? Well, I'm a native Californian, and I did my BA at the University of California, Berkeley. Then I did my PhD at Harvard. Um, and uh, I've taught at three different places. I've taught at Yeshiva University for three years, Indiana University for six years. And then from 1985 until I retired, I was here in Ann Arbor teaching at the Michigan. And you were teaching then a specific area of history? or I've always taught uh, modern Jewish history. Modern meaning since the 18th century. Since the 18th century. That's when the modern period begins, okay. by, most, uh, by most counts. The conflict we've seen has been trying to be encapsulated by the uh, current established media ecosystem as somehow there was this Palestinian state minding its own business, living peacefully, and then they were invaded by the apartheid Jewish state who's oppressed them, and they're only reacting naturally to that persecution. My limited understanding of history, that's not the case. What's happened in this region as far back as you want to go that's led us to this point? Well, the important thing to understand is there never has been a Palestinian state. doesn't mean there can't be or there won't be, but it means that there's no historical ground to stand on. Uh, all of the area of what's now the state of Israel, um, Lebanon, uh, and Jordan was, was a, an area of the Ottoman Empire. And it was not independent. It was simply just one 
you know, province of that area and ruled from Constantinople. It had been that way since the uh, centuries, really. Um, and then uh, in the early, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, a movement of Jewish uh, national liberation arose uh, in response to the failure of an emancipation and acceptance in Europe. And that's when really modern Jewish settlement begins in the land of Israel. Um, the, I should explain the word Palestine uh, is simply the English form of uh, Philistine. Um, and a little part of the strip of land there was Philistine from the Bible I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's how the, the word came into the English language. If in the 1920s and 1930s you had said to somebody, uh, you know, who are the Palestinians? The answer would have been the new Jewish settlers, because they were called Palestinians. If you look at accounts at that time from the newspaper, and Arab nationalism, of course, dates back to the late 19th century as well. But it's not focused initially on Palestine. It's hard to talk about Palestinian nationalism, specifically Palestinian nationalism, uh, until really after 1967. One thing to remember is that all the conflicts that uh, Israel was involved in were not necessarily with the Palestinian people up until, well, really up until the Intifadas. They were um, wars Israel fought with the neighboring Arab countries. I mean, if, if let's say, in uh, 1948, when the state of Israel came into being, um, after the British threw or were driven out of Palestine. If things had gone the other way, let us say, if the Jews had lost the war, they call the War of Independence in 1948, and the Arabs won, it still wouldn't have been a Palestine because the surrounding Arab countries were ready to gobble up that Larry. They didn't, they didn't back the Palestinians. There wasn't a coherent Palestinian nationalist movement. Uh, Ironically, and I'm somewhat exaggerating when I say this, it was conflict with the Jews that created the Palestinian people, that just gave them a national identity, as opposed to thinking of themselves as simply as Arabs. Uh, Arab nationalism goes back, it was initially a revolt, uh, not against the European powers, and certainly not against the Jews, but it was against the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, mm -hmm. from whom they wanted independence. So uh, it's hard to talk about uh, both groups, look, Jews have a, have a continuous existence, uh, but modern Jewish settlement, there'd always been Jews living in Jerusalem uh, and other parts of the Galilee, uh, but there hadn't been very many. Uh, uh, and it's only in the late 19th century what we call modern Jewish settlement. These are mainly agri agriculturalists, uh, set up the kibbutzim uh, and other kinds of agricultural settlements, and they uh, they number increases, and particularly the, the the need for a state, for a Jewish state, uh, became fairly clear uh, during World War II. Uh, the British did everything. The British have a lot of blood on their hands, uh, and they did everything they could to keep Jews from coming. Uh, this is during the mandate because they didn't want any more Jews there. Uh, 
And the Palestinians, or the Arabs in the area, were also waging war against the British too. So both groups were eager to see the British leave. So in 1947, 1948, it's Correct me if I'm wrong. The United Nations established the state of Israel. Yeah. Well, the United Nations. What happened in forty in forty seven? The British said, "We're sick and tired of this," because the British were losing a fair number. Had first of all had to station a large number of troops there, and plus in forty seven, forty eight, Britain was beginning to wind down its empire. Forty seven, India became independent, and the more uh, that Britain was re- retreating from its empire. That's a process that continued through the 1960s. But uh, the more it was treated, uh, the less it needed, from its strategic viewpoint, uh, that little piece of land there in the Mediterranean didn't become important. The British wanted to get out of it, but they didn't know how to do it. So in a sense, they said to the UN, here's our problem. This is a mess. Uh, Jews want this. Arabs want this. Uh, And the UN appointed a commission. And what, what they envisioned was a, what today we call a two-state solution. He said, these would be the borders of a Jewish state. These would be the borders of Palestinian They would be side by side. Uh, and each will go its own way. Uh, it didn't, and that's what the United Nations attended. Uh, it doesn't happen that way because the Arab states, uh, Lebanon to some extent, but mainly Iraq, Egypt, uh, and Jordan uh, would not accept that. For their percent, percent uh, viewpoint, it was all or nothing. There should be no Jewish state at all. Uh, and that, uh, that's when the war began uh, for independence, because those, those Arab countries with their regular armies invaded what then became the state of Israel uh, as soon as the British withdrew. So you had 1948, the British withdraw. There's this fragile new state of Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, attacking with the regular armies. And this is now the war for independence. Still at this time, not a Palestinian state, or there was a Palestinian state side by side, or that state never came into being. Well, that state never came into being. Why why is that? Why wouldn't there be? Because the Arab countries that surrounded it. First of all, they weren't going to accept an independent Palestine uh, from their viewpoint. They wanted the territory, uh, and they grabbed some of the territory. Uh, Gaza, for example, was taken by the Egyptians. Uh, And um, the area that today is called the West Bank was taken by Jordan. So from their viewpoint, there was was not going to be an independent Palestinian state or an independent Arab state next to the Jewish state. So that's why it didn't happen. It could have happened. I mean, Gaza and the West Bank could have been established as a Palestinian state then, but the other Arab states didn't want it. One of the things that has, I should point out, all of uh, the conflicts that Israel became in were with the Arab states surrounding them initially. Uh, there was no uh, underground Palestinian na- national movement or revolutionary movement or anything of any kind. That comes much later. When the war for independence was fought, was it exclusively Jewish versus the Arabs, or were there what would today be Palestinian Arabs fighting with the Israelis for independence from Jordan, Egypt, 
and Lebanon. There was some volunteers who were natives of the land, but uh, most of the fighting was involved the Arab nations versus uh, the fledgling state. So Israel prevails in that war right? for independence. They called for immigration into Israel at that time to build? Well, it was already come, it already began as illegal immigration uh, during World War II and immediately after. The British didn't want any Jewish immigration. But there was immigration. I mean, you know, they would come in clandestine ships and things. Uh, so there was that. And then but, but once Jews get control and they can control their own immigration policies and the number of but mainly from Europe at first. But then something else happens that really wasn't foreseen. When the state of Israel is declared in 48, there were something like uh, 750 to maybe 100,000 Jews living in Arab lands. Those are some of the most ancient Jewish communities. Many of them have been living there since Roman times, for example, in the case of the Jews of North Africa. Uh, life became impossible for them in the Arab countries. Uh, and so there's a mass migration, mostly to Israel. Some end up in France, a tiny number in England, etc. But most came end up coming to Israel. Uh, and actually, you see, one way of looking at what happened is, and because we know that about 500,000 Arabs uh, left their homes and went into surrounding Arab states uh, as a result of the fighting. Um, some because they were driven out, others because they expected to return with victorious Arab armies, uh, and some just because they wanted to get out of the way with fighting. Um, so what really happens, and this is one more, this is a perspective I see, is you have an ex population exchange. That is, I'll use the figure, half a million. Uh, half a million Arabs leave their homes, and half a million Jews from Arab countries are kicked out of Arab countries and end up in Israel. And one of the things that I find, it's first of all, it's distorting and most people don't understand, is that about half the Jewish population or more uh, in the state of Israel uh, are what they, what they call the Edot Mizrach, the Jewish communities from the, from the East, uh, and were originally Arabic-speaking, and whatever they were, they were not white. I mean, you go to Israel, you can see that the population, some people are white in the way the term is casually thrown around, and others are quite dark, people whose ancestors may have lived in Baghdad for centuries. So there is that kind of exchange of populations, um, as happens everywhere. That is to say, the Greeks and the Turks, uh, Germans who were removed from... Uh, from areas of Poland uh, and other places in Central Europe after World War II. Uh, and there are other kinds of, you know, population exchanges like this through history. Uh, that in itself is not so, so unusual. I think one of the great tragedies or and outcomes of 1947-48 is that the refugees who end up in Jordan or in Egypt or in Lebanon or Syria, wherever, are not absorbed into the population. That is, they, the, all of these states wish to keep the refugees as a separate group in refugee camps. I think mostly because they fear them. And also, it's a tremendous way 
to divert popular attention. As long as, you know, Jordan, or it doesn't matter which of the country you're talking about, are at war, uh, and here's and they have the, they can use the play off the sentiments of the former you know the refugees Arab refugees there. Uh, it's a divertisement. Uh, it keeps people uh, the, their populations uh, less concerned about the fact that they're getting screwed in all kinds of other ways mm-hmm. by the authoritarian regimes they live in. Yeah, it's not exactly the democracies there. So the recognition of Israel was. What recognition has been given has been slow to come by. Many of the Arab states still today don't recognize Israel. They don't show it on maps and, mm-hmm. and things like that when they're teaching their school children. As you move forward from that war of independence, is there more recognition? Did Jordan recognize the state of Israel at, as a country early on, or have they done it yet? No, that, that Jordan's recognition of Israel comes much later. It's all very relatively recent. And some people say that the peace with Egypt is a cold peace. Uh, there's not a lot of back and forth between the countries. Uh, formally, though, they're not at war. In one sense, Lebanon is still at war. Uh, going back to 47, 48, no peace treaty was ever signed. Um, so that, but the recognition by the states, and it, one thing to think about is the most recent outbreak uh, where Hamas invaded, uh, staged this invasion on October 7th. One of the reasons that, or for the timing was Israel was coming closer and closer to recognition by Saudi Arabia and the other states that would file, follow Saudi Arabia. And for militant Palestinian groups like Hamas, they didn't want that. So this was a way of throwing a a wrench in the whole thing and undoing it. Um, And it has made it much more difficult. I mean, uh, for all of, um, I'm not a fan of Netanyahu, but uh, his attempt to forge links with some of the countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, uh, is admirable and try to reduce the tensions there. Uh, but it becomes more and more difficult, uh, and who knows what the outcome will be now. So there's never been a established Palestinian state for their own purposes. The militants don't want to see the further recognition of Israel. I don't think anybody seriously thinks Israel is going to go away. They've been attacked the uh, 1967, particularly intense war, short duration, but very intense. Is the future of Israel just to continue to deal with the attacks, or is there hope that other Arab states will begin to recognize them? It's hard to be optimistic at present. And I'm speaking for myself. Yes. You know, and and uh, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not a seer, and uh, nor am I a stockbroker, and I can't foresee the future. Um, it's hard to imagine there being any kind of immediate peace process. Now, it's in the long-term interest of Saudi Arabia and other states that um, Iran be isolated. This is when to do it. So that's what's helping push them. And if they continue to think that way, then that may end up pushing them. But it's it's not going to happen tomorrow. Iran is not seen as an Arab state. It's a Persian nation. Right. And so the Arab states would like to isolate them and bring their influence down in the region. 
Right. Well, also, I remember uh, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis and the Yemen revolt at the present are all uh, clients, you could say, of the Iranian regime. And they're all disruptive forces. Uh, there's no, there has not been stability in Lebanon for decades, uh, because partly because Hezbollah controls some areas, uh, Catholics control some areas, or Maronite Christians, really. Uh, and um, Muslims control some other areas. So it's total chaos there. I mean, I, Lebanon used to be, so to speak, the French Riviera mm -hmm. of the Arab world. But that's no more. No, it's a tragic. It's a beautiful part of the world. And I've never been there, but I know many people that had immigrated to the United States to get away from the violence there. Mm -hmm. And it's a tragic loss of a, a wonderful place in the world. So maybe as we start thinking about some of the events of the 7th of October, obviously this took a long time in planning, very sophisticated tunnel networks that apparently are being discovered even more extensive than anybody knew. And this vicious attack is launched. What were the militants of Hamas attempting to achieve? And did they get there? Well, the ultimate goal of Hamas is the destruction of the state of Israel and the removal, they don't say how, of the Jews living there. Only someone who was totally crazy, totally crazy, could think that their kind of attack with a few thousand men and the way they attacked could accomplish this. Uh, what they did was, and this you have to understand, any terror organization like Hamas uh, particularly a militant group, which is committed, let's say, in this case, to the destruction of the state, has to always has to be seen always as at the forefront of the battle. So, in, a, in the sense that it made them the activists and Arabs everywhere else rather passive, you could say it served their purposes. They must have known they're not stupid people. Uh, they must have known the leaders of Hamas that Israel would retaliate. And in the retaliation now, was it about 20,000 people, civilians, have been, have been killed. And in some ways, I could say this serves their purpose because it just infuriates and angers. But, you know, they're willing to sacrifice, well, so far, 20,000 uh, Gazans uh, for their own political purpose. Uh, Hamas was never chosen by the people of Gaza to be their party. There was a civil war in Gaza between both the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, and the Palestinian Authority was driven out. Um, so that, uh, it, it's, it's not a, a question of what they attempted to, uh, of them scoring military victories and, and acquiring land. Um, you could say in many ways it was performative. That is to say, it was to attract attention. It was to position themselves as the most radical force of the anti-Israel states. Uh, and, you know, in that sense, I guess you could say it worked. Um, one of the defenses, of, I don't see how the people do it, but one of the defenses made by left-wing people in the United States is that, well, uh, this was very important because it was the first militant response uh, to Israeli rule. Now, in fact, that's not true. Both intifadas 
with that as well. Um, but certainly it's the most recent one. But remember, there have been two other uh, Israeli invasions in recent years of the Gaza Strip, but they never went as far as this one is one. Partly because the, 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 the thing that started this was not just shooting a few missiles. The uh, uh, Hamas has been shooting missiles into Israel uh, and with increasing frequency and accuracy over the years. Um, but this was an actual, I guess you can call it an invasion, but also the horror. Targeting of civilians, uh, rape as a and sexual assault as a means of war, innocent children wantonly murdered in horrific ways. I have heard people make arguments in defense of that inhuman atrocities. I, I just don't have enough words to describe how horrible it is, saying, well, look, Israel is the white colonizers, and this is a brown people suffering from apartheid, and therefore anything they do is justified. And I'm trying to understand that point of view. Is there a part of were the Gazans treated unfairly? And is Israel really the white colonizers subjugating a brown people? 50% of the uh, Jews in the land of Israel, or in the state of Israel today, are of Middle Eastern origin, are dark. Simply the tone of their skin. Some quite dark. Mm -hmm. Some much darker than people who claim to be you know, of African descent who live elsewhere. So it, it, that's not that's not the thing, and they're not colonizers uh, because what's the who who what's the power they represent? They're not British. They're not French. They're not German. In their viewpoint, and one could argue with it, the land of Israel has been a Jewish homeland uh, for centuries, but it was impossible for Jews to settle in large numbers there. Uh, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, it's not like Russian Jewry was colonizing. The other thing, let's say in the year 1880 or 1890, the area that becomes the state of Israel was relatively undeveloped. Uh, when Jews purchased land, and they purchased land, all the land up till 48 was purchased, and it was purchased from Arabs. Many of the people who were selling the land were, in fact, not people living in the land, but were great landowners who lived in Beirut or somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and they profited. Uh, land in uh, what then it was called Palestine, mandatory Palestine under the British, was more expensive than the most fertile uh, land you could find in Nebraska or somewhere else in the Midwest. It was very expensive. Uh, it's just that the, the people, the common people, didn't benefit from it. Uh, the people who benefited from the sale of land to Jews were large landowners who didn't really care about the Palestinian peasants. So as you're discussing this, it seems to me that today's definition of Palestinian people are kind of been used as a tool or as a, a proxy uh, for some you know, centuries-old conflicts um, and uh, versus you know, Iran coming down into Israel or in one of the Arab countries attacking Israel. Mm -hmm. And so who backs Hamas now besides Iran? Well, it's the major supporter. Then Hamas has also developed ways of raising money. I mean, raising money. It's not fundraising, but, you know, various illegal activities. Mm -hmm. 
they had large, uh, what we would now call a fairly large part portfolio of shares in various companies and things around the world. Um, but that, but it, the main funding came from Iran. Uh, yeah, Iran. And, and Iran's objective is to destroy the Israel state? Well, yeah, that's what it says, yes. See, one of the, one of the slogans that's common now is uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Mm -hmm. Now, I read that, and many people read that, as a genocidal uh, you know, annihilation of the Jews, and that's how we'll get rid of them, unless they're over the palm, so they get in ships and leave, which is not going to happen. Um, so, but one of the, that's one of the slogans that some people say, well, it's aspirational, uh, which <laughs> I'm not sure. Even if you aspire to it, it's, it's bad. Uh, as but it's and it's not going to happen as far as I can see. But um, it, it, was, it was a stated goal. And it, the thing is, it's remained constant. Um, there have been so many opportunities for a Palestinian state to come into being. Negotiations. Uh, <laughs> Arafat killed it once. He got, he would have been offered about 95% of the West Bank. Um and under others as well, who uh, Iraq, etc. But the, the the position of the Arabs, whether you're talking about Palestinians or the Arab states, up until recently, has always been all or nothing. Um, and that this comes, and in their mind, Israel is identified with the West. Uh, and in the mind, certainly of the left, radical left in America and Europe, uh, to be identified with the West as the source of all evil. Uh, Dark-skinned peoples are pure and virtuous and have always been oppressed. Uh, and it's a kind of simple black and white kind mm -hmm. of uh, setup. I think most people, for example, in the United States, who demonstrate uh, in favor of the Palestinians now, don't really, don't know very much, one, and for the most part don't care about the Palestinians. It's part of a long-term assault on, call it Western values, European values, whatever. Um, I mean, I remember I was a student at Berkeley, 1964 to 1968, and the big issue then, the, the so to speak, poster child for the left then uh, was Cuba. Mm -hmm. And that Cuba was recruiting students to go work in the sh sugar harvest. Uh, then later, years, Nicaragua was. Um, and at that time, of course, no one cared about Palestinians at all. But it shifts. And, you know, I don't know who it's going to be next week. I mean, and we saw this. And I wonder if the people, let's just say college campuses, that are shouting from the river to the sea if they've ever looked at a map. Because when you look at the river to the sea, that means no more Israel. That's what they mean. But may, you may be right. Some of them may simply don't understand. Yeah, well, I, I'm wondering, it, like, the thing I always find curious was this attack happens, and, and I say, okay, well, they have to know that Israel's going to retaliate. Sure. So there must be another move coming. And as the world was in shock over the absolute brutality of this, all of a sudden there are brand new Palestinian flags all over the United States. Mm -hmm. There were posters, same font, same 
you know, they came out of the same yeah. printing press. And you have to say, how did they get that that quick? It almost seems that there had to be infrastructure in place, to, you know, that would produce this kind of a reaction. Unless there was something, that a powder keg waiting to go off, okay, now, now well, we're going to go. Had, there, there had been, a, you know, growing uh, Palestinian enthusiasm on some campuses before, specifically before October 7th. Uh, I don't think there's any power behind the scenes manipulating things. It's not hard to get things printed. Um, but it's part of an ongoing campaign. So, uh, sometimes people re- refer to it as third worldism, um, you know, exaltation of third world and a denigration of, of Europe, or in this case, uh, Europe and the United States. Um, but a lot of it is anti-American. Uh, the other thing is, Anti opposition to the state of Israel can, it's not always, but can serve as a mask for anti Jewish feeling. Um, certainly, uh, Hamas makes no distinction. Um, actually, when Hamas rounded up people, they rounded up a lot of workers from Thailand because they were, who were working in fields and uh, on uh, Israeli farmland, etc. Uh, but they didn't particularly care. They also picked up a number of um, Arab Israelis, as Arabs who were citizens of the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. So they rounded up, and some of them were shot as well. Uh, but that was, by, from their perspective, by accident. The intentional attack on a concert. These are defenseless people. I can't imagine the justification. It's not that they stood for something. It was to cause as much damage as possible, to elevate as much terror as possible. And so you think about the end goal, and now you watch the media ecosystem in the United States now. It's all coming from one set of talking points about, wait a minute, Israel needs to back off. They're they're killing too many people in Gaza. And I've listened to some of the Israeli viewpoints where they're saying, look, Here's tunnels. It's underneath a hospital. These tunnels are being used for the organization of men and arms and supplies to attack us. We have to go get that. And they're very clever, apparently, these tunnels to withstand almost any kind of assault. I was reading one fairly reliable source that said there were 800 exits from one. So they're just trying to find out where these things are running is very difficult that they're set at sharp angles so, you know, concussive explosives don't work as well because they come to the end point. And so I understand the world wanting to bring down the violence, bring down the amount of damage to civilians. I don't know how it's done when you have evil people, and I will use that term, hiding behind and beneath those innocent people. Yeah, Hamas itself is not concerned with the welfare of the people who live in Gaza. If they were, they wouldn't have started this, you know, if you, if you engage in military activity against a much more powerful neighbor, you're going to be attacked and you're going to suffer from it. Uh, and they've used the, the, the Gazans as essentially shields, um, and every, as you're right, every day new evidence of new tunnels tunnels comes up. The most recent one I saw was big enough to drive a car or a truck through. Uh, in fact, if the millions and millions of dollars that Hamas used 
to build those tunnels have been used for education or welfare or sanitation. Things would look very different there. Indeed. And the people that were living in Gaza pre-October 7th, were they being contained behind fences? Were they being oppressed? Were they being shut out of being of having a representative voice in the Israeli government? What well, was their condition prior to October 7th? Within Gaza. Within Gaza, right. Well, Gaza then was, essentially Israel had controlled Gaza, had won control over Gaza in the 1967 war. With Egypt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, and then uh, Israel withdrew, I, I, sorry, I can't remember the exact dates, let's say maybe a dozen years ago, whatever it was. Um, and then, it, 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 you know, essentially the Gazans could not leave Gaza except through Egypt uh, because the, it was, they were not permitted to come to Israel, except if they were working in Israel. There were Gazans up until recently working in Israel, mainly in in construction and in agricultural labor. Um, so in that sense, they were caught in, I and mean, they couldn't share the, the uh, maritime uh, uh, exodus was also blocked. Um, so, but if, if, to call that a concentration camp is a little absurd. Um, Gaza could have exist, coexisted the state of Israel, very all they had to do was simply renounce the goals of Hamas, and that would have been it. I mean, Israel controlled Gaza, had no interest in continuing its control, and withdrew. Uh, and then the Gazans made a mess of things. And you're just, there's a distinction between the Gazans and the Egyptians. That Today there is. Okay, but 1967 more, it was part of Egypt. and Yeah, and, and certainly in the and during the British Mandate, there was no distinction. Well, I mean, there was a distinction b- between the Gazans and the other people. Gaza has become a, I don't want to say a world or a society unto its own, but it has, because it is isolated. Uh, it, it does border with Egypt, and there's the possibility of that, but Egypt didn't want Palestinians, uh, Gazans, coming into Egypt for various reasons. So the largely brown Egyptians did not want the largely brown Palestinians coming into their country. 50% of the brown Israelis said, you're not going to cross this line. Yet by the time it crosses into the United States, it's white colonizers oppressing a brown people who've always had their state. That's the simple-minded way in which the radical left in America or the mobilized left, or the hard left, whatever term you want to use, uh, sees and wants the affair to be seen. But it's part of a a much larger trend, I think, in either American society or Western societies in general, is a simple-mindedness. We're going to look at things, and there's good and bad. There's the virtuous and the evil, and there's nothing in between. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you're either with us all the way or you're, you are our, our enemy. Uh, it's simple-minded. It's simply not true. And, I mean, history's messy. So I, I don't imagine if you, you've been back to Berkeley or IU or sometime, and I don't know how much time you spend at the uh, University of Michigan campus here, but I'm wondering what coursework would be taught today about the situation with 
the Gazans and the Israelis and how it would be framed for you know, a young student coming in to, well, to learn I, I about think it today. depends on who's teaching the course. I, mean, I you know there's a course on the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict that's uh, taught by someone I know, and I think it, and he tries to give the perspective of each side, their narrative. Mm-hmm. This is how Israelis think about it. This is how Palestinians think about it. Um, and then there are propagandists, uh, or people... There are historians who aren't in so interested in being critical. Now, they don't teach this particular course, but in teaching a history of the Middle East, they may bring this in. I see. So if we start thinking about where this can go, and I know it's speculation and crystal ball as we look at this. So the Palestinian group, as it's defined today, is saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's the all or nothing. That means Israel doesn't exist. Israel's position is what? Well, it depends who... See, here's the conflict. There's an internal conflict within Israel. There's some Israelis, uh, really, it's, it's sort of a left-right kind of thing. The left in Israel, and the set, much of the center, does not want to keep the West Bank, does not see the idea of a greater Israel as either moral uh, or workable. Uh, and they would like to return... You see, there, the, the nucleus of an Arab state. Uh, The right, particularly the far right in Israel, sees that all the entire, their their position in some ways is like Hamas. I mean, they're not talking about murder, but they're talking about the whole territory should be uh, part of the the Jewish state. And that's partly what's been weak. And part of the problem is Netanyahu now has been prime minister for, I think, about 12 years, 11 or 12 years. And his own position is a maximalist position. Uh, He doesn't think you can negotiate with the Arabs, or at least the Palestinian Arabs. Uh, And he doesn't believe that there should be an independent Palestinian state. Um, And he's been able to stay in power because he's been able to attract the votes of the very religious in Israel, who aren't, for the most part, concerned with this, but what he does is he gives them large amounts of funds to, uh, to support their schools. Uh, he gives them authority over certain ministries, like the Ministry of the Interior. So it's the combination of the settler left in the West Bank, uh, and they're in the far-right parties, and then the religious parties that have kept him in power. But I don't, I'm guessing, uh, instead of speculating, that he's not going to remain in much power much longer that he will have to bear the responsibility, uh, at least for the intelligence failures that led to this, that should not have happened. Um, we now know, now what the evidence is available, just was misinterpreted. It was less than 48 hours after the attack on October 7th, the Wall Street Journal was reporting that Iran green-lighted the attack and named the specific meeting and the specific mm-hmm. date that they green-lighted it, and I thought to myself, well, how did they know that so quickly? And they must have had intelligence sources of their own or reporting of their own. It couldn't have been kept secret from the Israeli government unless there was just complete ineptness. As we know from reading the newspapers, uh, some parts of the Israeli 
uh, intelligence community knew this was be, knew something was being planned, but they thought either this is for the future, or they don't they don't have the wherewithal to pull it off. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, look, it's like um, if you look at nine eleven in the United States. Now we can see all of the signals we missed. Well, of course, that's ex post facto, and it doesn't right. matter much. Uh, and the same thing here. Well, still, though, gives rise to the point you made earlier, too, about how this is coming into American politics. Uh, BLM, as one example, having a, a symbol of a paraglider drone coming in to attack as some kind of symbol of liberation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that speaks volumes. And I don't think that organization's done much for your average black person. Yeah. Um, if you were to advise the president of the United States, you got a call today and said, you know, Dr. Underman, we'd love to see you in Washington. And we want to sit down with uh, Secretary Blinken and you know, maybe General Austin. What ought to we do here? You mean right today? Today. You're going to, and see, just I, for I the, today's December 18th, which I know things can change on the ground by yeah. the time we, we get this, this episode it, it out. It may be dated. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And you go into the Oval Office and they say, Professor Andelman, what should we be doing about this? What might you tell them? There are two different things I would say. One is short term and one long term. Short term, I would say, probably do what Biden's doing. Not really restraining them, but say they should restrain themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I could, and the reason for this, I think, is that uh, I cannot imagine uh, anything short of the destruction of Hamas uh, would bring any kind of stability. Because uh, they'll just do the same thing again 10 years from now, 20 years from now, whatever it is. Um, but long term, the United States does have influence. Uh, and it, and it, I think all along, for a long time, it hasn't wielded that influence. Uh, and that is to say, to urge the Israelis, partly because we give them a lot of money, um, to abandon the West Bank, uh, to move to a two-state solution, and say, look, you're not going to get, you know, it doesn't, it hasn't used its ties, its connections yet, to, I don't see, to further th these goals. Is there a group that would be part of that two-state solution, that second state? How would that get established? Well, that's the problem. Uh, many Israelis say, and it's, I agree with some of this, it's, there's, no, there's no one to talk with. For a long time, this was true about the PLO. Then finally, they changed a bit. But it didn't turn out as people had expected. Uh, at the moment, who represents the Arabs? Hamas? the supporters of Hamas in the West Bank, or the PLO, which rules out of Ramallah. I don't think any of them do. There is no answer. So whom are the Israelis to talk with? And that's a problem. It seems almost intractable. And in the Republican presidential debate following the attack, and they, they were asked, and I know Nikki Haley and I think Ron DeSantis both said to Israel, finish the job take out Hamas. Now, this was before there was such a toll of civilian casualties. And I don't know if they've changed their position mm -hmm. at all. And it's not like the Hamas is encamped out in the open where, you know, an army can, can it's get It's not like two armies meeting. No, no, not at all. I mean, it's uh, worse than urban combat. Dr. Ullman, this has been very informative. Many Americans like myself 
just don't understand this, what's going on in the history, what's led us to this point. I think we're all grieving over the bloodshed and the uh, just the wanton destruction of people that the Gazans can't live in peace. The Israelis don't really need to have missiles blowing up over their heads. We don't need to see our young people raped and murdered. And everybody wants a way out of this. And you've helped enlighten me today about how complex these are. And we're going into a media ecosystem in the United States. It's all about simplicity. White oppressors, brown people, we're going to take out the white oppressors. They're on our land. They've been there forever. Well, wait a minute. You've never actually had a country. I hope that my audience in the United States and internationally will be thoughtful about this. We do need to hold those that we elect accountable and responsive, and we need to hold those that report to us accountable. With that, any closing thoughts for the listeners, readers, and viewers of The Common Bridge? Well, I think my message would somewhat echo what you just said. Reject any kind of perspective that says this is black, this is white. A simple binary is not going to help. Whatever. It's much more complex than that. Um, you had a guest once who said that, well, complexity is just the, to say that it's complex is a way of def, uh, dis, um, deflecting interest in it. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, if, you're going, if you want, really want to see some sort of stability, I'm not talking about paradise. I'm just talking about some kind of stability then you have to, all the parties involved have to think there's something for it in them. They all have to agree that they're not going to get everything. I mean, you know, it's like the, the Rolling Stones saying, uh, you know, you can't always get what you want. Uh, and, uh, but if you try sometime, you'll get what you need. <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's rest a good note. That's the, rest, that's the rest of that lyric. Uh, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. We've been talking today with Professor Emeritus of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan, Dr. Todd Endelman. I do encourage everybody to do your own research. There's plenty written there. I'd also advise you to stay away from the current media ecosystem. They're there to enrage you, inflame you, and make you think that things are simple. They're not. Let's meet each other on the Common Bridge. And with that, this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on the Common Bridge. This episode was brought to you by Sensai, who offer an affordable cyber solution to small and medium-sized organizations. From creating an incident response plan to providing cyber awareness training and phishing simulations, Sensai delivers the tools to help your company prevent a cyber attack. Curious to see where your company stands with cybersecurity? Begin with a free cyber health evaluation that takes less than 30 minutes with no obligation to buy. You will get a credit score, but for cybersecurity. Start your journey at Sensai.com. That's S-E-N-S-C-Y dot com. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio or your Radio Garden app.